You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Well, as we've been going through our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, we found ourselves uh, in a section in which we see Jesus's power demonstrated starting back in chapter four, his power over nature as he calms the storm. Now we see his power over evil and Satan as he cast out these uh, legion of demons in this man. And next week, we're going to see his power over sickness and even death itself. Um, And As we think about Jesus's power, <clears throat> we, 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 we come face to face with a conflict that is real in our world. The, the, the conflict between God and his plan and his purposes and Satan and his plan and his works to destroy it. A few years ago, I was having coffee with a Satanist. <clears throat> Always a fun, uh, enjoyable time for a cup of coffee. I don't know if you've ever met a Satanist, but we were doing uh, this, uh, this thing called the West Side Cafe. Uh, it was kind of a, an effort to talk about questions that people in our culture may ask from a biblical perspective. And so we were talking about, can you find meaning apart from God? Does suffering, uh, does, does suffering negate uh, the reality of God? And, and various questions. And there was a, a man who came to one of these, uh, and he he identified himself as a Satanist. And so um, <clears throat> I, I didn't really know a ton about Satanists. Um, I don't know if you know a ton about them. As their name suggests, I would think they liked Satan, right? Um, and so uh, with a little bit of like kind of like uh, uneasiness, I was like, hey, let's get coffee. Um, and um, I'm a godness, you know, and you're a Satanist, you know, and uh, also called a Christian. I didn't say that. But um, I said, let's get coffee and we'll, we'll talk. You know, I would love to hear more about you. And, um, and so we get coffee and, uh, and he begins to explain to me that Satanists don't actually believe in Satan. Um, and I was like, well, well that, that clears things up a little bit, you know? Um, and, and he goes on to explain that basically Satanists are, are atheists. And I actually, uh, as I recalled our conversation, I couldn't uh, remember exactly how he described it. And so um, I was looking up the Church of Satan, and uh, this is their statement that they have regarding what they believe. Um, and they have this question, do Satanists worship Satan? They said, we don't. Satanists are atheists. We see the universe as being indifferent to us, and so all morals and values are subjective human constructions. Our position is to be self-centered, with ourselves being the most important of our subjective universe, so that we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. Our current high priest, Gilmore, calls this step moving from being an atheist to being an atheist. Satan, to us, is a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism, and it serves as an external metaphorical projection of our highest personal potential. We do not believe in Satan as a being or a person. But the ideal of Satan is the ideal of the Satanist. I might suggest that some of us functionally have operated as Satanists. I don't want to step on your toes and call you a Satanist, but functionally, have we ever lived as if we are the most important person in our subjective universe? Maybe not atheist, but atheist. Living as if we are at the center and we get to determine what's best. 
And though, though there's a rejection, actually, of the person and being of Satan, which obviously is in conflict with Christian teaching that there is a real Satan, the Satanists get one thing exactly right, and that the epitome of Satan's fault described in the scriptures is pride, a desiring to elevate himself, the created one, over the creator. And that lie, that belief that we can put ourselves at the center of our subjective universe in God's true universe is at the heart of all sin from the beginning in Genesis 3. That we have lived as if we can decide what's right and what's best. Did God really say Satan tempted Eve? God will not do this to you if you reject his commands and you reject his ways. God is holding out on you. Rather than God being the source of all joy, God is a killjoy. And that the real joy is found when you live for you and you do you, pride, liberty, individualism, seeking to be your highest personal potential as you define it, as you see it, is at the heart of what Satan did to fall from God's grace and uh, to rebel against God and what Satan has been doing from the beginning, lying and deceiving, seeking to kill, steal, and destroy, as John 10 verse 10 says. See, when we think about having coffee with a Satanist, you might think to yourself, that sounds, maybe that's a little further out there. Maybe, maybe you haven't interacted with someone who believes as such. Um, but what we're going to talk about today is Jesus's power demonstrated over Satan himself, over the demons who do the, do the devil's bidding. And it's easy for us to kind of remove ourselves from the, the thought of demonic activity, from the real tangible evil that exists in the world and think to ourselves, I, I, I've never seen that. I don't know anything about that. That's, that's out there. And I was uh, studying, I came across a, a quote. <clears throat> this was attributed to C.S. Lewis, but I've tried to track this down and I can't find uh, Lewis saying it in anything. So uh, take it for what it's worth. I think the statement's true. Um, and it sounds like something Lewis would have said, but he said, as it regards the strategy of the devil, the devil seeks to be obvious where he is feared and hidden where he is not suspected. Obvious where he is feared and hidden where he is not suspected. And if you've spent any time, if you've traveled in the world, you'll know that in some places where there is a real, a real sense of, um, of, of the presence of spirits at work in the world, there is a very real presence of evil, a very real fear of evil. Often in societies in which we've kind of buffered ourselves from those fears with technology and various advancements, we sometimes uh, see those things as, uh, as, as, uh, as suspect. And so uh, it, it, it very much fits within the strategy of the devil that he would be obvious where he is feared, demonstrating his power, even though it is a limited power uh, to those who fear him, but hidden where he is not suspected in the unseen realities that go on around us working himself out in the expression of the church of Satan, uh, who are neither a church and apparently don't believe in Satan. So I'm not quite sure how any of that works. But at their heart, we see the work of Satan in the pride of man every day. In our own hearts, when we set ourselves up as most important, 
when we question God. Lewis said, I did find this, that there are two and equal opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve, or he says devil, speaking of Satan and demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence, this rejecting it. The other is to believe and to fill an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So you might be thinking to yourself, this sermon has begun in a weird direction. I don't know why we are talking so much about Satan. Um, I don't want to have an unhealthy and excessive uh, fascination with Satan or demons. But I certainly don't want to lead you to, to deny them or to reject their presence. Because the Bible is clear. There is a real devil. His name is Satan. There are fallen angels who do Satan's bidding until the time comes when they will be judged and eternally bound in a real place called hell. There is evil in the world. And that evil is not a force that's equal to the, to the power of God. God has demonstrated and subjected the evil forces through his work on the cross. And one day when he returns, he will subject them eternally in judgment. But in between now and then, we see that there is a very real presence of evil in the world. There is the work of Satan and there are the work of his demons. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it maybe seems more real and smacks us in the face. I don't know if you've had the moments where you've seen and experienced something that you look at and you go, this is real evil. Maybe you see it in the news headlines of mass murders, of terrible tragedies that take place. Our world is complex, and in many ways there often isn't just one reason for these things. But as I see a world filled with violence, a world filled with evil, a world filled with hate, there, is a lot of, there are a lot of reasons that that has played out in our world. But I, I can assure you that one of the reasons underneath them all is that there is a very real person called the devil, and there is a very real presence of evil in this world. The world isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And we see the reality of evil in the stark contrast of the goodness of God and what he intends his creation to be. So what I want us to see today as we look at Mark 5 isn't an unhealthy fascination with Satan or demons, but a very real belief in the power of Jesus over them. Because we're going to see in Mark 5 that Jesus delivers us from bondage to sin and Satan and sends us to tell of his mercy. Jesus delivers us from the very real bondage to sin and Satan and sends us to tell of his mercy. There are three words that I think summarize this passage. The first is bondage. We see it in verses 1 through 5. Jesus is described as coming to the country of the Gerasenes. He comes to a place that I, we might say is a place uh, in darkness, not literal darkness, but spiritual darkness. The, the country of the Gerasenes or uh, Gedarenes is another in the Gospel of Matthew. The, uh, there are two different places and the spelling is somewhat similar. Um, but there is this town that's located right near the sea that most likely describes this on the opposite uh, side of the Sea of Galilee in a region known as the Decapolis, which is defined by about 10 cities that kind of uh, interwork together. And uh, this region is a region that's predominantly populated by Gentiles, those who, who aren't Jews. Um, <clears throat> and we know that Jesus got to this place because Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, let us go across to the other side. Jesus isn't here by accident. 
He came here on purpose. He came to this place that's defined predominantly and filled predominantly with Gentiles, a place that's uh, in many ways filled with spiritual darkness, no connection or, uh, or witness to uh, the message of the gospel, to the message of the good news of the kingdom that's come in Jesus. Um, and, and here they are, this place in darkness. Jesus has showed up. The king has come and has stepped off the boat. And I think in many ways what Jesus does here is he foreshadows in this passage the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles that will come about following his resurrection and through the mission of the church. You see, Jesus said that he came first to the house of Israel to fulfill the promises of God to Israel. But in fulfilling the promises of God to Israel, what God said to Abraham in the beginning is that he came to bless Abraham so that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. Salvation was to come through the house of Israel, but it wouldn't come uh, through the people gathered in Jerusalem. It would come through Jesus who fulfilled and obeyed and succeeded in all the ways where Israel failed in the Old Testament. Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's commands and was the perfect representative of Jesus, of, of Israel. And so in Jesus, the promises are fulfilled and the message of the gospel would not be for just a few, but it would be for all. And Jesus is here giving us a glimpse of what is to come. He intended to come here. And the only reason I can think that he intended to come here is because of the man in, of the man in bondage that we see in verse 2 comes to a place in darkness to meet a man in bondage. Gospel of Matthew tells us there were two men. Uh, Mark apparently tells us the perspective from this one man whose life no doubt uh, was inevitably impacted. It makes you wonder perhaps if he was a source for Mark uh, and, uh, and Peter and, and recording uh, this account in the gospel. But it says that this man in bondage describes him in a few different ways. We, we are told that this man is isolated. We see in verse 2 that as Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately, that's one of Mark's favorite words, it appears that this took place uh, almost suddenly upon him coming uh, to the shore, that there on the shore must have been some tombs nearby because there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit with a, um, that was demon-possessed. And he, this man lived amongst the dead. He was isolated. He was living, but he was living among the dead. He was, in many ways, you could say, a dead man walking, isolated from others. We, we also see the picture that goes on in verse 3, repeats, he lived among the tombs. It says, and no one could, could bind him anymore, not even with chain, for they had bound him with shackles and chains, but he would tear the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one could subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is not only isolated and marginalized from the rest of his community, but the picture that you see here is one that could only be described as dehumanization. He is presented as if he's an animal, unable to be bound, unable to be contained. And all he does at night is, and, and during the day is cry out. It, it, it's this picture of, uh, of, of, of not only great physical strength, but, uh, but we also see an uncontrollable uh, uh, physical and emotional state of this man. No one can subdue him. All he does is cry out. It's a bleak picture. It's the kind of picture that would 
it doesn't tell us that the disciples got out of the boat, but you can like see them like starting to step out of the boat and they're like, oh, hey, I'm going to step back. I don't know if you've seen that baby gif, you know, where the baby like comes around the corner and then like he turns around all of a sudden and runs back. Like I can imagine the disciples are like, all right, Jesus, let's go. Oh, uh, you know, step back in the boat, you know, like what is happening? It's an unsettling experience. And you can imagine that the people uh, that live in this community, it's an unsettling experience for them as they see and hear uh, this man. But I think perhaps most striking, it tells us, not only is he isolated and dehumanized, but in many ways, I think the, that perhaps the, the most fitting description of this man is that he's alienated. See, back in verse 2, we're told that he has an unclean spirit. Now, a number of times in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that demons are referred to as unclean spirits. Uh, and that, that designation, unclean spirit, maybe sounds a little odd. The, 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 the reference to being an unclean spirit doesn't have anything to do with hygiene, right? Like it's not a physical hygiene issue. It's a spiritual state issue because being, uh, being possessed by a demon, living among the dead, literally touching the dead would make you unclean. And the whole scenario that, that this man's life is defined by is actually not just cutting him off from others, but it literally has cut him off from going to worship God. He has no ability to go and worship God in the temple, no ability to offer sacrifice, to be with the people of God. He is literally alienated from God and from others and even within himself as he harms himself, cutting himself with, with these rocks. His, his whole life is defined by alienation. And this picture of bondage in many ways I think really is a portrait of what life apart from God looks like with the exception that it's intensified by the presence of this demon-possessed man, by the fact that he's demon-possessed. It's a picture of, uh, no doubt, exaggerated and, and not in the sense of untrue, but in the sense of, uh, of we get this life-size picture of it, this intense picture of it in this man, because it's a portrait of what life looks like apart from God. As well as even in our lives when we choose not to live with God at the center, when we choose to, to functionally be Satanist and put ourselves at the center of our subjective universe, it's as if we cut ourselves off from God. We cut ourselves off from others. We become less than what God intended us to be as he created us in, in his image to know him and to worship him. We actually aren't even functionally experiencing what God intends for us when we are in bondage to sin. We know this description is true because we see elsewhere in Scripture that apart from uh, the transformation that comes from Christ, we are conformed, and you might even say deformed, by this world and our sin, Romans 12, 1-2 says. Ephesians 4, describing how sin is at work in our hearts, says, uh, Paul says, I tell you not to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is into them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, uh, to practices of every kind of impurity. We, we see the, the alienation that comes from sin and the bondage that comes from sin. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And now Christ has reconciled us in his body and the body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, the Bible describes sin as enslaving us. This man is enslaved by, by being possessed by a demon. 
We experience enslavement when we give ourselves to sin. I've said this before, and it doesn't hurt to repeat saying it again. Sin will always, always, sooner or later, keep you longer than you want to be there, make you pay more than you want to pay. It always costs more than we want to, to pay. It always takes us where we don't want to go. We think we're in control, and then we find out we're not in control. We think we're the master, then we find out we've been mastered. That's how sin works. That's how sin operates as it enslaves and, and puts us in bondage to ourselves and to our sin. And like this man, apart from God's merciful intervention, we are helpless. And in many ways, that's the picture that this man uh, in bondage in, in Mark 5, 1 through 20 uh, is described as is helpless. There's nothing that any human can do is the portrait that's painted in verses 1 through 5. Nobody has a solution. Nobody has a way to control this man. All they can do is isolate him, separate him from everyone else. Out of sight, out of mind. I mentioned earlier that the only reason I can think that Jesus came to this place was for this man. It's the only person he really interacts with other than the herdsmen and uh, some of the people from the town, but the, the only person that we're told that he interacts with us on this short trip is this man. He doesn't stay to teach. He's obviously not even wanted, we're told. He doesn't do any other miracles. He takes a night's trip across the sea, apparently for perhaps no more than a day's worth of ministry, maybe, maybe less than four hours worth of ministry. And then he gets back in the boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee. And this picture of bondage that we see, I just want to, to highlight this point. <clears throat> we think about Jesus's power to deliver us from the bondage to sin and to Satan. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus consistently moves towards lostness. Jesus consistently moves towards the unclean. Consistently moves towards the helpless. He doesn't shy away from them. He doesn't pull back in fear. In fact, he said in Luke 19, verse 10, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Jesus tells us and embodies here in Mark chapter 5 what it means to leave the 99 and to go after the one. He goes after this one man on the other side of the Sea of Galilee who's in bondage to Satan and he delivers them. That's Jesus. We may be in bondage, but our bondage doesn't have the last word in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is the one who delivers us. And so your bondage may not look like this man, but if you feel stuck in sin, if you feel if you feel frustrated and overwhelmed, if you feel a sense of uh, not understanding or knowing what God is doing or, or questioning what can be true of God, know that Jesus isn't running, not running from you. He draws near. He shows up on the shore for those who are in bondage. Everyone else may abandon you. Everyone else may leave you as if you're a dead man or woman walking. But Jesus won't. 
He comes to the unclean. He comes to those who are in bondage. And the second word that we see is deliverance. Jesus delivers those in bondage. We see this demon-possessed man, when he sees Jesus, he runs to Jesus. And, And we've talked about this before. Oftentimes, when Jesus is in the presence of demons... These demons and controlling the people with whom they are possessed, they throw themselves at Jesus' feet. Jesus doesn't command this man to get down. Jesus doesn't, uh, apparently from the description of Mark, isn't the first one to address this man. This man, filled with these demons, runs and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And I don't think that this is a, a, you could perhaps see this as a posture of worship. Maybe the man is throwing himself at Jesus, but, um, but, but I think most likely there's the sense of these demons through this man throwing themselves in submission to Jesus. They are Jesus's enemies, but they have no power over him. They throw themselves at his feet and they cower in the presence of Jesus. And they rightly identify, look at what they they say. They fall down before him and they cry out with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? They actually beg God and in God's name that he would not torment them. In Matthew 8, Verse 29, we're told, uh, as Matthew records this story, that the demons cry out, uh, O son of God, what have you to do with, do with us? Have you come to torment us before the time? See, I think what, what you see happening again and again throughout the scriptures is that the, the demons know that their days are numbered, that there is a day of judgment coming and they say to Jesus, is this now the judgment uh, or are you going to torment us before the time? They're basically saying, don't torment us before the judgment is to come. And it's amazing throughout the gospel of Mark, the demons know who Jesus is more clearly than anyone else. And it shouldn't surprise us because James tells us that the demons believe that God is one. He, said, he actually says it this way. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. So the demons do. The demons believe and they shudder. The demons rightly know who God is, but they know who God is. They know who Jesus is as the one who will judge them and have authority to judge them in the end. And so they cower here at his feet. And there's a few things that's interesting about what takes place here. First, we see that they adjure, they, they plead with God by God to not torment him. And Jesus apparently had said or been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So on the one hand, this, uh, these demons don't come out apparently at the first word of Jesus. And then when they do, they try to barter with Jesus. And Jesus responds and he says to them, what is your name? Verse 9. And they reply, they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, just as a side note, every time I hear the word Legion, I can't help but think in my head, I say it in the voice of Schmeagel. Um, uh, and, and I don't know if you ever do that, and if I just ruin um, it for you, I'm sorry. Um, but there's just this like, Legion, you know, I don't know like if that's true or accurate in any way. Um, But uh, when you're talking about Satan and demons, you should laugh a little bit. Um, But the point is, as they refer to themselves as legion, is actually revealing here the the great power of not just one demon that is apparently conflicting this man, but many demons. The the word legion in reference to the Roman military is a a description of a a group of 6,000 soldiers. 
So here the picture is of a great power, a great force that has overcome this man and put him in bondage. And every time in the scriptures we see Jesus, we see God asking questions, just like God does with Adam and Eve when he says, where are you? It's often not to to help him figure out something he doesn't know. It's to help reveal something that we should know. This man is totally overcome and overwhelmed by a power greater than him. But he's standing in the presence of one who has more power than even a legion of demons. Jesus has the power to command uh, a storm raging in the sea to be silent and to be calm. Just as he has the power to tell a man tormented and raging with demons inside of him to come out, be calm. And we're told in an interesting turn of events that these demons beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And there are a great herd of pigs that are nearby. And they were feeding on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. What in the world? <clears throat> we actually, part of this shows us that this is a predominantly uh, Gentile area. You most likely would not find a herd of pigs um, on the other side uh, of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and at this juncture, um, the Lord had not opened the door uh, for us to partake and enjoy uh, bacon uh, yet. And so um, <clears throat> this, would, this would have been a primary source of income for these herdsmen and perhaps those living in this area. Uh, it's not an sig- insignificant number of pigs. But there's this question of like, what, wh- what's happening? <laughs> uh, this demon-possessed man uh, is is freed from these demons and they go into these pigs. And <clears throat> there's a few things that, that I think we can say. One, we can say that nothing happens. Jesus not only has the power to uh, cast these demons out of this man, but these demons can do nothing apart from Jesus's permission. Uh, we, we see them not acting on their own, but only upon permission of Jesus. What it doesn't say is that Jesus uh, allowed them to go into the pigs so that they would kill the pigs. Um, I, I think what's happening here, the best I know to explain what's happening here is two things. I think, one, this demonstrates that the, the time of Jesus' um, uh, judging Satan and the demons is not yet. The time has not come. It's also a reminder... Uh, as Jesus tells elsewhere, when, a, when, when an unclean spirit comes out of a man, they go and they look for a place uh, to, to settle. And if that house isn't uh, cleaned and put up properly and protected by a stronger man, those demons will come back and uh, bring others with them and inhabit that house again, that man again. There's this real sense in where there is a very real evil presence that persists. Jesus heals this man But that does not mean that they are not subject and uh, susceptible to the work of Satan and demons any longer. So we know that their time is not come and that though Satan is on a leash, he still seeks 
to devour. He seeks to kill, still, and destroy. But I think the second thing that uh, these pigs uh, demonstrate to us is I think they demonstrate the true nature and the true intention of Satan and his demons. What these demons did to these pigs is what they desired to do to that man, to destroy him, to kill him. And when we think about the work of Satan in the world, we think about the work of demons, the work of evil in the world, that perhaps is expressed in its greatest way when people are destroyed, when people are killed, when people are thrown away, discarded as if they matter not. That's the real picture of evil that's on display. But Jesus has the power over Satan and his demons. He has the power to deliver. And it goes on to say that uh, upon this man being delivered and what followed with the pigs, the herdsmen, you know, as you read that, the first time I read that, it didn't fully register. Like the herdsmen, as in like the herdsmen who just lost 2,000 pigs, right? Uh, They go into the town and they tell everyone what they had seen happen. And then everyone comes out to see Jesus. And when they get to Jesus, they see the demon-possessed man. And now, remember, he was described as isolated, dehumanized, alienated. Now look what he's doing. The man who had a legion, you can kind of see, like, they're trying to process this. There he is sitting. They used to try to bind him and, uh, and shackle him so that he would not uh, overcome others by his power. He used to be a threat to others. There he is sitting, clothed. And in his right mind, with Jesus. And we see that there are two types of people who see the work of God. There are those who see the work of God and say, I need that too. And then there are those who see the work of God and say, that's too much. I don't want that. See, the people see what God had done and they don't say, man, I need that too. I'm just like that man. Maybe his, possess- maybe his situation is intensified, but I'm, I'm no different than him. No, they see what took place and what had been described, and they begin to beg Jesus to depart from the region. They say, Jesus, you have to go. The one who has the power to deliver us from bondage, they look at and say, you've got to go. They look at the work of God, and rather than saying, I need that too, they look at that and say, not for me, not now, too much. And friends, that's true in the world today. There are people who look at the work of God and whose hearts are humbled, and they say, I need that too. And there are those who look at the work of God and say, I don't, I don't want that. I don't have time for that. That disrupts the status quo of my life, of this community If you can do that, what else can you do? If you can do that, then what authority do you have over my life? If I trust you, do I get to call the shots or are you calling the shots now? And there's this sense of fear of trusting in one who has such such power, not only to calm storms and cast out demons, but to command us to do what what he commands. So deliverance is what Jesus brings to this man who is in bondage. And and I can't help but just think as we think about Jesus who delivers, consider these words in the book of Colossians. 
Colossians chapter 1, as we think about the, the ongoing work of redemption today. Speaking of Jesus, it says that Jesus has delivered us, this is Colossians 1, 13 through 14, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, that's, that's what Jesus has done for this man. And that's what Jesus does for all who will receive him, all who say, I need that. I am in need apart from God intervening. I am in need. I'm alienated from God and from others and even from myself. The God who created us in his image, the only way we get back to God's good design that's been marred and broken by sin is when we trust in Jesus. Who through his work on the cross and through his uh, rising from the grave has the ability to transfer us from the power of darkness. Just like this man, a man in bondage sitting in a place of darkness. Jesus has the power to transfer us into the kingdom of his beloved son through his work on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the deliverance that Jesus offers. But this passage doesn't end with deliverance. The third word that describes what takes place in this passage is sent. See, after all of this takes place, the man comes to Jesus and asks a completely reasonable question. Can I come with you? Can I get out of this place? Can I get out of the tombs and come with you? In fact, he does it in in a more earnest way. He begs that he might be with him. That's the same phrase that's used in Mark 3 to describe uh, what Jesus did when he called the disciples to be with him uh, and to preach the gospel and to go out. It's a a description of what it means to be Jesus' disciple. And I have to admit, I'm somewhat perplexed by Jesus' response at first because he doesn't permit him. He permits the pigs, he permits the demons to go into the pigs, but he doesn't permit the previously demon-possessed man to join him. So it seems. It says he doesn't permit, and doesn't tell us, tell us why. As I mentioned earlier, we, we see the pattern of Jesus' ministry is first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles, this kind of um, uh, pattern of how the gospel extends uh, through Jesus' ministry and, in, and through the mission of the church. And, and perhaps that's what makes the most sense, that the time had not come uh, for Jesus to extend uh, the gospel to the Gentiles in this, uh, in this particular way. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us why Jesus wouldn't let him go, but it does tell us why Jesus wanted him to stay. And I think that's important. It says in verse 19, <clears throat> he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, verse 20, <clears throat> verse 19 tells us that Jesus said, stay and do two things. Tell everyone how much the Lord has done for you and tell them how God has shown mercy to you. And it says in verse 20 that this man goes and he proclaims all that Jesus had done for him. It it, it describes this man on the same terms as John the Baptist, as Jesus himself, as the disciples. He is going about proclaiming just as they are all that Jesus had done for him. He didn't know a lot. He hadn't spent much time with Jesus. Just a few hours. But he knew what Jesus had done for him. And he goes and he tells everyone. And the thought that kept coming to my mind as I read this, the people of the Decapolis 
didn't want Jesus to say. They said, Jesus, please go. But Jesus didn't want them to be left without a witness. So he left this man to proclaim all that Jesus had done and how he had had mercy on him. Throughout the scriptures, we see that those whom God delivers, he also sends. He calls us to be his witnesses of all that he's done for us in Christ. And sometimes we may not always understand what God's doing, but there's one thing that God invites us and calls us to do. And that's to tell others of how much he's done for us, how he's shown us mercy. I don't know if this is true for you, but it may be true that you're the only witness for your family, for your friends, for your dorm, for your workplace, for your street. Jesus has left you and me here and there and everywhere he has put us. Not so that we can be snoods that look down our nose and tell other people how unrighteous they are. No. So that having first looked in the mirror and seen our need for him, we can tell others of how much he's done for us. We can tell others of the mercy that's found in him. See, if you've experienced grace and mercy, you have a story to tell, just like this man. You may not know much. But you can tell people what God has done for you. You may not know much, but you can tell them how Jesus has paid the price for our sins on the cross. You may not know how it all works, but you can say that Jesus has risen from the dead. You may not understand all the particulars of what they've gone through, but you can say that there's one who can deliver us from even the deepest bondage. There's one who goes into the pit of sin and death and is able to bring us out. Because he went into the pit and laid in the tomb for three days. And death could not hold him. Sin could not hold him. Satan could not hold him. So when we are conflicted by sin and oppressed by Satan and afraid of death, where should we turn? To the one who overcame it all through his work on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. Tell them of all that God has done for you. Notice just the subtle description of who Jesus is here. Jesus said, go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. And what did he go and do? He proclaimed how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. He's master, the one who has the power to deliver and the one who has the power to send us. Do you have a testimony of how God has shown you mercy? Have you experienced God's mercy and grace for yourself? If you haven't, his invitation to you today is encapsulated in this man in Mark 5. He was seeking you before you sought him. While we were still sinners, Romans 5 eight says he died for us. And he invites anyone who would call on his name to do so and they'll be saved. So say that. Say that in your own words. Express your dependence on him. Tell him you need him. Tell him you believe that he really did die for you and that he really did rise for you. And say to him, God, have mercy on me. And you'll have a testimony to tell.
And if you have, if you have a testimony to tell, I have a testimony to tell. It's easy along life's way to get caught up telling other stories. Good stories, true stories. Don't ever forget this story, how he had mercy on you. Don't ever forget that you had a need like this man, that Jesus showed up on the shore of your life and he delivered you. I pray I never get over it, and I pray you never do either. Let's pray.